Welcome to Episode 50, The Big Five O of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And I'm joined today by Michael Vadis, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, now a partner in Steptoe's New York office. Michael, uh, you got your choice. You can tell me what you're doing, or you can tell me a really good book you've read in the last three months. Uh, well, I'll tell you what I'm doing. I'm doing interesting stuff. I'm advising a couple of companies now on their uh, data security policies to make sure that they're really prepared for uh, cyber attacks, um, including uh, putting together a uh, tabletop with Jason for one company so they can exercise their, their existing uh, plans. Very cool. I, I, I may start a new feature. Uh, uh, what is the state of... Um Michael Vadis's facial hair, because uh, you, you, your, your, your beard is gone, your hair is of moderate length, uh, 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 no one would mistake you for a lumberjack or a uh, fisherman, uh, uh, so uh, I, we'll have to wait and see if, uh, if I have to do this update frequently, but uh, it, uh, it's notable, uh, uh, you've, uh, you've cleaned up, by, you, you must be going to client meetings. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Uh, and our guest commentator today is David Sanger, who's the chief Washington correspondent for the New York Times, uh, author of uh, a pretty good book uh, uh, called uh, Confront and Conceal uh, uh, about the Obama administration's uh, use of uh, uh, national power in uh, foreign relations. Uh, we'll come uh, talk to him ab- about the book uh, and um, some of his other books uh, later on in the hour. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with the NSA and DHS, and the record holder for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. Uh, um, let me uh, just jump right in because there's actually a fair amount of news. Uh, with uh, news or snooze, uh, uh, the president is, um, uh, as we record this, about to propose uh, cybersecurity legislation in his State of the Union address. Uh, um, and, uh, Michael, I know you looked at some of this, and I did as well. Uh, what can you tell us about the legislative proposals that he's going to make? I think uh, some aspects of this are news. Um, first, the uh, there's a proposal to amend the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. The principal change there would be to uh, resolve a split in the circuits over whether it violates the act to uh, access a computer that you're authorized to access, say if you're an employee at a company, but you do it for the purpose of taking information that you then use for your own purposes, such as to leave and set up a competing business or take it to a competitor that you join. And so the the proposal would amend the statute to make it clear that that sort of access for a bad purpose is a violation of the statute. Oh, okay. I, but they, they, they tweak it a little. It's not uh, as easy to fall foul of that part of the statute as the statute that says accessing the computer without any authorization is a violation, right? Well, it's, it, it would say that it, it constitutes exceeding authorized access to access it for a purpose uh, other than the, the employers. Okay. So I think it would. So this is good for business. It makes it easier to use the statute to go after rogue former employees. Yes, not what it was originally uh, adopted for, but uh, now it has a lobby of its own, uh, and so that's not likely to go away. All right. Yeah, certainly uh, for for civil suits, it, that's where it's really used. You know, the civil uh, lawsuit provisions. Yeah, I, I I have to say this is a very broad statute, uh, uh, and mixing criminal and civil liability where. After all, people who bring civil lawsuits bring them if they're colorable uh, and they're mad enough, uh, whereas you hope that prosecutors are a little more thoughtful about what they uh, choose to uh, uh, treat as a violation of the statute. Those two things, mixing those two things means that uh, you're constantly expanding the scope of the criminal law, maybe in ways that uh, don't make sense. Yeah, I think you're right. You often get some confusion when you have courts in civil cases, interpreting criminal provisions and, and vice versa, because there can be some unintended uh, effects. The other big piece of uh, of news about the proposals, I think, is a is uh, a statute that would create a national data breach notification standard. This is something that businesses have been clamoring for, because right now, if there's a data breach of a big company, 
you could have uh, potentially 51 different state and territorial uh, data breach standards apply that you have to meet, and they're all somewhat different. Uh, so this proposal would create one federal standard that would preempt the, the state and territorial uh, laws, which I think is good for business. What's not so good for business is that there's a pretty broad definition of what constitutes personal information, broader than most of the states. So it's not just name plus uh, credit or bank account number, but it includes uh, name plus a or email address plus a password or security question, uh, biometric information, um, driver's license, passport uh, numbers, even if it's not in conjunction with the name. So. Uh, that would increase the, the burden a bit. There's also an obligation to notify DHS, which in turn would have to notify the Secret Service and FBI and the FTC if the breach involved uh, data of more than 5,000 individuals or a database containing the uh, PII of more than half a million individuals. So uh, I think it would increase the uh, number of times businesses would have to notify uh, in the in the long run. Yeah, this is this is interesting. Two two thoughts on this. Uh, you know, your picture is a biometric. The, the 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 picture on your driver's license is considered biometric information. Uh, if pictures of all sorts are considered biometrics, there's a big problem. And and really, frankly, even pictures that happen to be on a corporate ID, it's sort of hard to see that that's a, uh, the kind of information that you're worried about getting out, because anybody can take your picture. Uh, but the other thing that I find interesting about this is that this administration, which is surely the most liberal Democratic administration since Lyndon Johnson and maybe earlier, um, has turned out not to be particularly good for the uh, trial lawyers, despite the fact that they're uh, an important part of uh, uh, the uh, the fundraising base of the uh, of the party. Uh, this president really is not particularly enamored of the trial bar. Okay. Oh, one more one more uh, proposal. Uh, there's an information sharing uh, bill from the president. Uh, uh, now there there already were uh, information sharing bills. One of which CISPA actually passed the House, and uh, CISA was uh, reported out of committee after extensive negotiations with the uh, administration uh, last year. Uh, they've re tinkered this proposal, uh, uh, and so it's now probably closer to what the privacy groups want, other than nothing, which is what the privacy groups really want. Um, and uh, um, I, I suspect made it slightly more controversial for business. Uh, uh, basically, it's the usual uh, language, uh, notwithstanding any other law, you can, uh, uh, as a private sector um, individual or company share um, a, a cyber threat information and indicators. Uh, uh, but unlike many of the bills, this actually imposes obligations on the private sector sharers of information. Uh, uh, they have to take Reasonable efforts to minimize information that can be used to identify specific persons and is reasonably believed unrelated to a cyber threat. That might work. Uh, uh, there's a lot of reasonableness uh, built into that. Uh, uh, but if I were the um, Chamber of Commerce, I'd be saying, wait a minute, you're creating a whole bunch of obligations on us that don't exist today. And so that's the area that I predict will turn out to be most controversial. Um, the, the president is moving closer to the privacy community and further from the Republican Party and the business organizations that have so far supported the, uh, uh, the legislation. And that's pretty much it on, on what the president's proposing. Uh, uh, let me give you another news or snooze. Uh, Europe expands surveillance in the wake of the Charlie Hebdo killings. Uh, Michael, news or snooze? Uh, I think this is news, um, you know, if you enjoy uh, poking fun at European hypocrisy. Uh, oh, God, please. I, of course I do. <laughs> which, which, I know you, which I know you do, um, and I do uh, on occasion, too. Here, what's ironic to me, one of... One of the calls from uh, European Justice and Interior Ministers uh, is uh, to have Internet providers create a system to quickly report and remove 
any online material that, quote, aims to incite hatred and terror, close quote. So it, what they're getting at is, of course, um, terrorist and specifically uh, radical Islamist terrorists, but they, I guess, fail to see the irony that the, the Charlie Hebdo uh, magazine um, certainly incited hatred and, and often seemingly purposely so, uh, but they seem to want these laws to apply only one direction. Um, the other interesting thing is, you know, we've had all this post-Snowden criticism of U.S. surveillance practices in particular, but now again you see European governments after Charlie Hebdo and, and even before starting to call for, for new security measures. Um, one measure actually in France uh, actually took effect January 1st before the attacks, and that allows various uh, numerous ministries in the French government to seek uh, metadata of electronic communications even without a court order. Uh, it can be done on the approval of somebody delegated uh, by the prime minister. Uh, Which so is how their system has worked for a while, right? They, they, uh, they were never as enthusiastic uh, about going to judges uh, versus going to high officials. Uh, um, uh, so I'm, I'm not sure how much of a change this is, uh, uh, but it is certainly the case that the U.S., response to Snowden is completely now out of step with every other government's. Uh, the Aussies have uh, 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 tightened their uh, surveillance laws. The Brits have. Now the French have. Most of Europe's going to do it. Uh, um, I think we are in a post-Snowden era now. Yeah, I think what's, what's uh, perhaps one of the things new about this law is the expansion in the agencies that can um, – seek this information it includes not just the interior and, and defense ministries, for example, but also the economy and budget ministries. Uh, and they can collect information not just for terrorism or, or crime investigations, but also to protect the scientific and economic potential of France. I mean, as you know, they've well, always that's, been that's, big. That's, that's code for stealing uh, uh, trade secrets from America. Yeah, that's, the French have always been one of the biggest uh, uh, proponents of, of economic espionage. So this is definitely in line with that. Yep. Okay. Um, next, uh, National Academy Study Group finds there is no easy substitute for bulk data collection. Uh, uh, I went through that report. It was an interesting report by people who know something about privacy, a, a fair amount about data, and something about intelligence. I, 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 it was an attempt to avoid talking about the policy and just to talk about the technology. The president had said, I'm going to ask our best scientific minds if there's a way to avoid doing bulk collection by getting smarter software systems uh, uh, that can uh, help us uh, target our, uh, uh, our adversaries better. And essentially this group said, uh, no, you can't. We'd like to talk instead about ways to further protect privacy of bulk collections. Uh, essentially, what the the the, uh, organ, the group said was, if you want to go back and look at the past after some event that suddenly makes you realize you should be more worried about a person or a country or a phone number than you used to be, the only way you're going to be able to go back and reconstruct the past is if you collect uh, the past while it's still present uh, uh, and store it in bulk collection. And then they went on to say, but there are plenty of ways that you can protect that data uh, from bulk access, uh, which I, I frankly makes the – it's nice to see the Markle Foundation report being recycled once again 13 years after it was first uh, uh, examined. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Um, that was our whole point uh, in those reports was to allow great collection but put very strict limits on how – on who's able to access it and how it's able to be used. Yeah, the, the irony here, of course, is that that's exactly what NSA was trying to do and exactly what has provoked the, the outcry. But uh, the logic of the technology is going to push us in the direction of doing the bulk collection and then protecting it better uh, despite the, uh, the bad political reaction. All right, here's one. Uh, DEA's bulk metadata program disclosed. Michael, uh, this has got to be news. Yeah, this is news um, in, this, in that it's not just the NSA uh, that's been collecting bulk metadata, but DEA did it for apparently around a decade uh, up until Could you tell that? I, I, could, 
I couldn't tell how long it had been going on because the filing that they made didn't say. Yeah, I, I read a couple of reports that said it was for more than a decade. So I, we don't know precisely how, how long. Um, I guess more than a decade could be a lot more than a decade. Well, more uh, than a decade means that, that, that DEA invented it and uh, NSA may have borrowed it from DEA, doesn't it? Maybe. Yeah, I think, you know, it's, there's not a lot of detail yet. Um, this came out of a, a criminal investigation and a, I think a motion to s- suppress. So there's more information likely to come out. What's interesting is that DEA did this under its existing, you know, long extant uh, administrative subpoena authority. Um, it has always had administrative subpoena authority, unlike the FBI, which has always wanted it um, and has had to settle for using uh, uh, 215 orders in terrorism cases. But DEA can use this in, in regular criminal drug investigations. The biggest difference that in, in that in a way it's narrower than the NSA program is that it's limited to outbound U.S. calls to foreign countries if the calls are determined to have a demonstrated nexus to international drug trafficking. So they're apparently not getting all metadata for all communications, all calls, uh, but only those that, that have some nexus to drug trafficking. But this is all, you know, up, up to the DEA to determine because it's an administrative subpoena. Yeah, I was under the impression that that meant all calls to Iran, for example, because there are drugs in Iran. Uh, maybe maybe it's more tailored than that, but I bet, uh, you know, knowing the DEA, I don't know why they would tailor it if it meant that they couldn't go back and reconstruct past events like the National Academy of Sciences uh, talked about. Um, interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I think uh, um, this, this cast doubt on Jim Sensenbrenner's su- suggestion that he is completely shocked that somebody would read the statute this way since – the administrative subpoena statute uh, is very similar to uh, uh, Section 215, uh, uh, and it raises the question of uh, whether the Justice Department should have defended this, uh, the NSA's program, a little more aggressively by pointing out that there was this precedent. Uh, instead, they were hoping uh, just to quietly kill it and uh, never have to disclose it. Yeah, I think it's interesting. But the, the, the question you raise, I think, is going to be the key one to um, look for answers to, which is how broadly have they actually defined the scope of the, the data that they're getting and, and how has it been implemented? Since this is all, again, without, unlike the NSA program, there's no involvement by a judge here. It's all just pursuant to the DEA's own subpoena authority. Okay, uh, here's, here's one that I think is more snooze than news. Uh, uh, ISIS group compromises central commands, that's CENTCOM's Twitter and YouTube accounts. Uh, that was, a, that was a, a big news story for about uh, a minute and a half, uh, but it looks as though that was just, you know, it was more embarrassing than uh, telling us anything about ISIS's capabilities or even really CENTCOM's security other than the security of their um, public affairs unit, which uh, – uh, was pretty bad. Uh, last one. Um, UK spy chief warns Apple Google privacy effort is closing off ability to catch terrorists. And related to that, UK's Cameron to lobby Obama on encryption, as indeed he did. Uh, um, this, I, I, I found this entertaining, uh, uh, but also perhaps um, substantively interesting because Cameron came here. He was much mocked for saying that he didn't think that unreadable encryption was good uh, and that there needed to be a way to regulate it. Uh, uh, techni- techies who actually know less than they think about uh, security insisted that that was, that was insane uh, and that he was uh, a fool. Um, and that the United States would never go along. And then the president uh, stands up at a press conference and says, well, you know, if we have a, a, a phone number or an email account uh, where, that we know is associated with terrorists and we can't read it, that's a real problem. Uh, uh, sounding more like Jim Comey than anybody at the White House probably expected him to sound like. Uh, um, so it may be that uh, Cameron actually had an impact on the president. Well, yeah, it's almost uh, like uh, Maggie Thatcher urging uh, George H.W. Bush not to go wobbly uh, back in the first Gulf War. Um, because, of course, this is not something the White House has, has really been uh, out in front on, unlike the FBI. But, boy, this is just another instance of deja vu all over again. It takes me right back to the, the early and mid-'90s and the encryption debates over 
key escrow, you, you almost wonder whether uh, Cameron brought uh, a sample of the old clipper chip phone that NSA had uh, designed back then. Yeah. Good times, good times. <laughs> yes, that was that was good. Okay, uh, that is our quick news roundup, uh, and let's uh, let's turn now to our interview with David Sanger. David is a New York Times national security reporter. Uh, has been uh, um, very active on the cyber beat. Uh, broke the story in his book uh, Confront and Conceal, Obama's Secret Wars and Surprising Use of American Power, broke the story of uh, Olympic Games, uh, which was the uh, um, attack on the Natanz uh, uh, enrichment facility uh, uh, using Stuxnet, uh, and has produced, uh, uh, just on Monday, uh, uh, a uh, very interesting story on the attribution of the Sony attack, uh, um, essentially uh, uh, disclosing a, a set of facts uh, strongly suggesting that the National Security Agency has compromised a lot of North Korea's attack infrastructure and was able to watch the attack unfolding uh, in something like real time. Uh, uh, welcome, David. Thank you, Stuart. Great to be back here with you. Uh, so uh, what was most interesting about that story? I've given the, the, the headline, but uh, you really dug into it. Uh, um, let me start. Uh, how much of an overlap is there between, uh, if, if you don't mind talking about this, the sources for the book uh, and the Olympic Games stuff uh, and uh, uh, the uh, most recent story, which does credit uh, former government officials as well as foreign officials, which I uh, uh, raised the question for me, how, uh, how much of this is the same people talking to you again? You know, it's pretty much a, a different operation. I mean, Olympic Games was a very internal United States and Israeli operation against uh, against Iran, and uh, it took 14 months of reporting and moving all around the world and uh, trying to line up what the cyber attacks were with what the physical effects were that we saw mm -hmm. uh, and the physical effects you could get from the IEA inspectors of course who had been in and out of Natanz frequently the Sony hack as a reporter you come at differently um, I was White House correspondent for the Times for um, six very long years uh, during the uh, end of the Clinton administration and, and most of the Bush administration and sending a president out to name a foreign adversary and to name the leadership of that adversary as responsible for any particular act, much less something as difficult to attribute as a cyber attack, is a big, big decision inside right. a White House. And for President Obama, who had been highly critical of his predecessor for the uh, way that intelligence was handled around Iraq and WMD a dozen years ago, uh, Coming out to do this about North Korea, given his own remarkable caution, if you have talked to his aides about the way he deals with intelligence matters, it really jumped out at me. And as soon as he said the, what he said at his December 19th um, press conference, uh, I went back with our great team of reporters who deal with this and said, there's got to be something out here that he saw that we don't yet understand. Yeah. Okay. I, 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 so it, it was Kremlinology in the White House. Uh, it was it, all it was was listening to the president and having covered the White House for that long. I, I, I completely agree with you. And in fact, if you remember uh, the beginning of the administration when the Chinese were hacking everybody. Um, the reluctance to name the Chinese was profound. In fact, we wrote a long story, Nicole Perlroth and I, about Unit 61398, the mm -hmm. Chinese hacking unit. You will remember this story because it's the first one that showed a picture of their building. Well, this is after they hacked you. I don't, I don't blame you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, um, yeah, all's fair. Um, and um, uh, so it was a year before the U.S. government was willing to name, US, uh, name Unit 61398 in the an indictment that they did last uh, May yeah. uh, along those lines. So, yes, this was both rapid and at a high level. 
And so, of course, as soon as you begin pulling that string, what do you discover? Well, you discover that there was a National Security Council meeting the day before the president mm-hmm. spoke. You discover that at that meeting they made some decisions about what the president would say, that that was based on a run-up of evidence that they had been presenting to him for a number of weeks. So you said in your intro that the NSA had seen the North Korean hack massing in just about real time. That's not quite what our reporting showed, but close. The NSA was into North Korea four years before the Sony hack came about, Right before anybody had thought about making what was a really, truly bad movie, mm-hmm. the interview, okay? Um, yeah, no, I, 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 I have to say, I, I am proud to say I never watched it. it, it it's true. Oh, I, I, you've I, you've got to go between Seth Rogen and Kim Jong-un. I take Kim Jong, I uh, uh, take Seth Rogen, but that's really the only competition Seth Rogen really wins. Um, I would um, I would strongly uh, advocate you you see it because when the history of this period of time is written, if it turns out that we do get into a broader conflict with North Korea, historians will be going back and playing this movie and saying, we did this over this. <laughs> okay. So anyway, we'll set that aside. Um, as I've as I've it's said, sort, sort of the Sarajevo of cyber war. Yeah, as, <laughs> as, as I've said to people in the movie business. The movie about the NSA, North Korea, and Sony is a better movie than the movie that created the NSA. Well, Sony's got rights to that, right? (laughs) Uh, So um, just to back this up, the NSA was inside the North Korean systems starting in November of 2010. Mm -hmm. And uh, moving forward, they got in deeper and deeper. Now, they got in in part by their because they had been quite frustrated that North Korea had been such a hard target. Mm-hmm. They figured out ways in through the Chinese entryway. They figured out ways in through uh, South Korea, which was doing its own operations on North Korea. They found some ways in through Malaysia, which has big um, uh, switching centers that the North Koreans were using. Mm-hmm. Um, but... All this enabled them to do was obviously look at the leadership compounds. Obviously, they were focused on the nuclear program. They were focused on the missile program. The usual, I mean, we could sit here and make a short list of things that would you'd be intently interested right. in as a U.S. intel officer looking at North Korea. Uh, but when it came to the Sony hack, which uh, actually began with a spear phishing operation in September of last year, they saw that there were spear phishing operations going on from North Korea toward the United States, not just to Sony. But it didn't strike them as particularly unusual. Because well, that's what you do when you're starting an operation of any kind. Of any kind, right. And uh, the, I think if there is fault here for the intelligence community, it's that they didn't match it up with the very public threats against Sony that North Korea made starting in the previous June. Right. When they first heard about the movie, said it would be an act of war, wrote a letter to the U.N. Secretary General, asked him to stop the movie, not usually a role for the U.N., but no harm in asking, um, and, and so forth. So nobody sort of did that math and said, gee, the Sony spearfishing might be of a different nature. So even well, when- and and, and to, in in their defense, uh, the idea that NSA should be protecting Sony from attack is or would have been deeply controversial at the time. Would have been because if you look at America's cyber plans, there's a national response only when there's an attack on national infrastructure, the power grid, the financial markets. You've seen all right. these plans. You probably wrote a few of these. I, I, I did, and, and, and I have to say Sony was never on any and of them. Sony was never on any of the lists because Sony is not a part of critical infrastructure. However, uh, what was interesting about the president's decision was that at that same press conference, he said there would be a national response. Now, why did he do that? Partly because this was the first destructive attack, and I think most Americans miss that. This wasn't just stealing uh, the um, salaries of uh, Hollywood executives. This wasn't just stealing uh, gossipy emails about Angelina Jolie, interesting as those were. 
uh, supermarket. Right. They, they actually fodder. they wiped they wiped a whole bunch of uh, wiped, hard drives. They wiped a lot of hard drives. They destroyed a lot of servers. And I think the president decided he had to draw a line at destructive attacks. <laughs> and then on top of that came the threat of a 9-11 style attack on theaters that showed the movie. That raised a whole different set of issues. And it was the combination there that I think set the president off. Well, maybe the public, you know, it, it was a public challenge to him because uh, I, I, apparently uh, Las Vegas Sands uh, uh, was attacked much earlier, isn't that right? And and had a bunch of uh, hard drives wiped and right. we, we said know, nothing about it. We don't that, know right? very much about the origins of, of that attack, but it looks like this was the most severe uh destructive cyber attack on American soil. Now, yes. not as destructive, uh, perhaps, as the Iranian attack on Saudi Aramco. Right. Uh, not probably as, even as, well, maybe along the lines of the attack that we believe North Korea was responsible for against the South Korean banks and media companies. Right. Yeah. So I, I he, it, it did make sense. I mean, we've, we've seen a Batch of attacks that are almost designed to test how f- uh, how much the U.S. is willing to take without doing anything. Uh, uh, the attacks on our banks, for example, right. uh, um, and it, the it, attacks on the U.S. banks. President Obama's general view was, you know, J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, they're big boys and girls. They can handle their own cybersecurity. This is this, you know. Well, and they were they were sort of more aggravations and um, modest demonstrations than actual uh, severe attacks on the infrastructure. You also want to send a message to private industry. They've got to invest in there. The government isn't going to be here to go do everything for you. So, you know, just as you want to tell people, yes, the government will come and investigate the break-in in your house, they also want you to take some basic precautions. They want you to lock the door. They want you to have an alarm system and so forth. And I think the concern was that if the U.S. government got into every single bank attack, they'd be doing nothing else. Yeah, well, maybe. Uh, uh, and, of course, you know, I, my view is uh, uh, they aren't sure whether they want you to buy a gun, either in cyberspace or uh, in your house. And the police right. will often say, you know, leave that to the professionals, which implies an obligation to actually be be there when when you're needed, uh, uh, and since nobody is there when needed uh, in cyberspace, it, it has raised the question that J.P. Morgan is struggling with now of uh, when you can go uh, attack uh, the servers that are attacking you. Mm-hmm. So that's that's interesting. But I, I do want to come back to, to this because the other thing I thought was really interesting in your story was. Uh, the history of uh, North Korea's involvement in this and the infrastructure, which clearly the South Koreans have been following closely. Uh, uh, it's long been a tenet of North Korean uh, warfighting doctrine that they're going to have this massive infiltration, fifth column in uh, uh, South Korea. And it's easy to do. They speak the same language. Uh, they look the same. Uh, um, and, and this worked for them uh, in the past. So these sort of electronic infiltrations are part of that doctrine, it seems to me. And it looks as though they, long before they had the Internet, before they even probably had PCs in uh, uh, Pyongyang, uh, they were going to study cyber war with the Chinese in the early 90s. Yeah, you know, um, part of the reason we wanted to include this, and this was the great work of um, my colleague uh, Martin Fackler, who's our Tokyo bureau chief, a job I had long ago and far away, uh, one of the great foreign postings of the, of the New York Times. Uh, but uh, Martin spent uh, a good period of time in South Korea doing the reporting for that. And, you know, it's a little bit counterintuitive because, you know, we're also used to looking at that satellite map of uh, North Korea and seeing the big black hole and saying, these guys barely have electricity. How can they have much computer skills? But the fact of the matter is they have been investing in it. And as somebody who has covered North Korea and been in and out of it a little bit, uh, out of it more in the past 20 years because they're not inclined to give me a visa these days, um, uh, cyber offers the North Koreans a flexibility that their nuclear weapons and their missiles do not. Right. They can actually use them. You can actually <laughs> use them. A nuclear weapon, uh, we know what Pyongyang looks like 60 minutes after the first use of nuclear weapon. It's the end of the Kim regime. 
their missiles are useful for threatening Japan and South Korea, might one day be useful for threatening the United States. But right now, they've got significant accuracy issues. The safest place to be during a North Korean uh, missile test right now is exactly where they're aiming their missile. <laughs> okay, so, um, uh, so, you know, over time, that will get better. But again, that brings about an overwhelming and devastating uh, response. The amazing thing about cyber is it's not on an on-off switch. It's right. not on a big red button. It's on a rheostat. You turn it up, you turn it down. And in this case, they may have thought that they were staying below the heat level that would bring about a U.S. response. Well, they, actually, they have. I mean, the U.S. response is, the US response frankly, it's pitiful. Is, uh, <laughs> well, the response that we have seen, which is these sanctions, are pretty pitiful. I mean, it's hard to sanction the most sanctioned nation on Earth. Right. If you and I had to sit around and think about what it is that you could do to the North Koreans to hurt them economically that somebody hasn't thought of since the Truman administration, it's tough. Right. <laughs> okay. But, uh, but at the same time, uh, they have opened themselves up in a way here that I'm not sure they calculated. Right. I, I, I think you're probably right. I was disappointed that uh, when, you, when you, you you described it, but you didn't use the analogy I have used, which is uh, um, North Korea got good at cyber war the way East Germany got good at swimming. You just go out and you find the most talented sixth graders all across the country and move them to a special school and they spend 10 years doing nothing but what you want them to do and well, you're world class. You know, thank goodness, because we worry a lot about North Korean kids, and when they are finally freed, <laughs> <At least they're laughs> when they are finally freed from, you know, what is clearly one of the most repressive regimes on earth, uh, it's it's good to know that uh, there's going to be a talent pool out there that might actually find some pretty useful work. So. Um, the other thing that I thought was interesting about uh, uh, what you said is the um, use of um, the Snowden documents, where you actually mine some of the Snowden documents that were recently released to find a description of um, the early uh, inter, uh, interventions or uh, intrusions into North Korea. Uh, uh, just a, a couple of uh, sort of frequently asked questions, if I remember, uh, uh, which um, led Glenn Greenwald to say he was shocked at this disclosure of uh, information. He didn't, he didn't blame the Snowden Papers, but in fact, uh, this is the first time he's ever said uh, that he dislikes the use of the Snowden Papers. Well, you know, he had access to these, and The Intercept, which he, his, his publication, um, uh, certainly has published a lot of other things uh, that go toward NSA espionage of foreign countries that are not just privacy uh, issues. Uh, in this case, the story was pretty well written and put together when Der Spiegel, uh, the German magazine, they did big came out over the weekend and they, they did a, a very interesting piece in which they released probably two dozen uh, of the um, Snowden documents, including some I had not seen before. Um, and this was one of those. And uh, so we just we linked to it and credited Der Spiegel. But it simply provided documentary evidence of what we had already sort of reported out. So what's obvious, I guess, is that even though it took us nearly 20 years to tumble to the fact that North Koreans were decent at this, uh, and apparently given the caution about attributing and responding to the uh, um, some of the Iranian attacks, we still haven't quite tumbled to the Iranian capability. Um, But it's pretty clear that attribution is going to be an important part of our future uh, responses to cyber. Uh, um, What do you think the attribution capabilities are here and maybe how fragile are they? Uh, um, is this the kind of leak that leads to the drying up of uh, uh, our intelligence capabilities or not? Well, this is always a concern. Uh, and, you know, when I first joined the Times um, more than 30 years ago, believe it or not, uh, we on very rare occasion had issues with the U.S. government 
came to Washington after being a foreign correspondent about 20 years ago. I'd say once or twice a year we would have one of those discussions with government that you remember mm -hmm. when you were in your government service where you'd have to sit on the other side and um, persuade a, a publication that uh, either all of what they were going to publish was shouldn't be published, or if you had to have a fallback position, what's... Take the names out, take the... Yes, what take specific the to take out. out. Yes. I would say that we now have those discussions several times a month. Hmm. Um, and not just Snowden-related, not right. just cyber-related, but there is just so much more out there. The web allows so much more um, specificity. Uh, it means that the information you're publishing is transmitted so much more quickly that adversaries see it. Right, and it, fits, it fits into a, a, a bigger mosaic. It fits into a bigger mosaic, absolutely. So we try to be extremely um, careful about this. Our, um, our presumption is to publish. We think the founders created a... First Amendment and a separate and independent press for a reason, and that reason was not that we wanted that they wanted the United States government to be deciding what goes into newspapers and now the much broader uh, media. But that does not mean that you have to be irresponsible. That there are ways that you can tell the story without great specificity. So in the case of this story, I held back some details that went to specific kinds of systems that mm -hmm. the NSA was into uh, that would give a greater ability for the um, uh, North Koreans or others to go back and look for the implants in their system right. in very specific systems. Because, frankly, you can get across the nature of the story, and I hope we did here, Without, yeah, that, that I, specific. I, I, you know, I um, lack enthusiasm for the New York Times general principle on this, and I think Eric Lichtblau, I think he was the guy who did the uh, uh, terrorist finance program. Uh, that was a contemptible uh, decision. Uh, there was no scandal there, uh, and it blew a, a very important program. Uh, but this one, it seems to me. If you told the U.S. government, by the way, North Korea has compromised some of your computers and is spying on you, it would not be news and it wouldn't help us keep them, get them out. And I have a feeling that, that much the same is true at the level of abstraction at which most readers of the New York Times care, which is how did they get this? They compromised the computer. We understand that can be done. We don't need to know which computer or how. Um, and so you can, you know, ordinarily I wouldn't, I wouldn't defend the decision to publish this, but in this case it seems to me, uh, the likelihood that there's a lot of damage is pretty small and I would have expected a relatively minimal pushback from the government on this. Yeah, way. there was, there was some. Uh, I wouldn't call it minimal, but there was, there was some, but I've seen more. Um, you know, after the publication of the story about Olympic Games, uh, where I don't think we compromised anything because the code actually escaped from the Natanz right. plant in 2010. So by the time I got to telling the story of how the U.S. government did this, the Iranians already had the code in their hands, a fact that I think many members of the U.S. Senate in denouncing our reporting sort of right. went right by. But um, in this case, after Olympic Games, the North Koreans had to know that if the United States was putting that much effort into getting into the computer systems of an adversary who they did not want to have nuclear weapons, that they had to be number two on the list. Right. Yes, I, I, I think that's probably right. Uh, um, although knowing it in theory and knowing it uh, uh, in the New York yeah. Times is different. Uh, um, so let, let, let me ask what you think all of this means. We now have a situation where the U.S. government's been accused uh, of doing Stuxnet. Uh, the, uh, uh, the Russians have been accused fairly credibly of doing something similar maybe even earlier than Stuxnet, uh, or at least 
uh, contemporaneous with it in an attack on uh, the um, Azerbaijan to uh, Turkey uh, pipeline. Uh, the Chinese are at least stealing secrets from practically every 500, Fortune 500 company. The North Koreans and the Iranians have demonstrated uh, in cyberspace the same contempt for the emerging international norms that they have for norms on terrorism. Um, where do you think this is going to go next, and what does it mean for the U.S.? Well, first, the United States needs some deterrent capability right here. And when I went to go interview Admiral Michael Rogers, the new head of the NSA, a few months after he came into office, and we were talking about his long-term goals, he said, we need deterrence. He said, right now, there is no price to pay for an attack on the United States. So the best way that you begin to establish deterrence is by calling out who your adversaries are. Mm -hmm. So... You know, a lot of people do comparisons between uh, cyber and nuclear, and almost all the comparisons are off base. But what I tell my students on on this issue in the the course that I teach on national security is that every question we asked in the Cold War about how you control nuclear weapons, how you create deterrence for nuclear attacks, the same questions we ask for cyber. The only difference is that all the answers are different. Right. Okay. <laughs> okay. So in the nuclear case, you could go into a big uh, cave in Colorado and sit there, and NORAD would put up on the screen a big map, and you could see where those missiles were being launched from. And while there may be a little bit of chaff and a few things to try to throw you off, you fundamentally knew where the attack was coming from. The problem in cyber has been we have fundamentally not known. The only way you are going to have really good attribution in cyber is to be inside the systems before the attack happens Mm -hmm. so that you can see them coming together. Because everything else, as the critics of President Obama have pointed out, can be faked. Right. I can make an IP address look like it came out of Steptoe and Johnson when it may have actually come out of uh, a small Chinese law firm uh, in Shenyang. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Okay. So, um, so the trick here is very much to uh, attempt to make sure that you are in those systems. The problem the U.S. government has run into is that it does not want to discuss its offensive cyber capability. And putting an implant in a foreign system that is there for espionage, well, that implant could also be used for destructive attacks later on. I mean, it's like putting the port into a patient before you give them... In drugs, medical yeah. treatment. Mm-hmm. So you can use it to probe, or you can use it to put a camera in and look around inside the body, or you can use it to insert the drugs, right? And um, so the U.S. government's got to get over this concept where it can't discuss this capability. Mm-hmm. And we have a recent example of this. It's drones. Okay. Right. So. We started using drones, armed drones, right after 9-11. Unarmed, we've used before that time. And I was White House correspondent and Chief Washington correspondent during this period of time. You could not get a government spokesman with a microphone on to use, to that use word. the word drones mm-hmm. until the President of the United States decided 10 years into the program, just about, that this was ridiculous, that he needed to have is now CIA chief and the director of um, Homeland Security, uh, and get the president himself to come out, talk about the drones, talk about the policy, talk about how to control them, talk about whether they should be at the CIA or in the Defense Department, talk about all of that. Yeah, I think I, 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 I can see that, although, you know, talking about stuff has um, good consequences and bad. Uh, I, and... Um, by talking about it, they normalized it, and plenty of other people have gotten in the business of 
building and deploying drones for military purposes uh, who might not have been quite so enthusiastic but for the U.S. acknowledgement of, uh, of the program. Could be, Stuart, but in the case of cyber, lots of people are doing cyber already. It's right. well much more spread yes. than drones, number yeah. one. Number two is you can't walk around and say we're going to have a discussion about norms for the use of cyber weapons. If you, if you can't unless say... Unless you can't acknowledge what you have. Right. Okay? You, you know, here, again, let's go back to the nuclear analogies. We went through the first 17 years after dropping the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. We had no arms control treaties. Right. Because we were convinced that we were out ahead. And it was only once the Soviets built up a significant capability and then the Chinese were on the way that John F. Kennedy proposed in the last big foreign policy speech before his assassination that we begin to move towards so this, some kind of regime. This might explain why the Chinese aren't so interested in it. They think they are effectively out ahead. Well, they, you know, we think we're ahead. They think they're ahead. Well, and we were ahead in the ways that we care about, and they're ahead right. in the ways they care about. And the Russians are not bad at it. And what we've learned in the past two years is the Iranians and the North Koreans are coming up fast. Because it's not that hard. Because it's not that hard. It's so you've got to move faster than we did in the nuclear case. The analogy I use, I, I think the nukes, um, it, it's too comforting an analogy uh, for, for because, uh, you know, we haven't had a nuclear war. Um, I think the closer... Uh, analogy is the development of bombers in the 20s and the 30s, which were, as as a British prime minister famously said, uh, uh, essentially an unstoppable offensive weapons. The bomber will always get through, uh, is the speech he gave. Uh, I, and the effort to build up bomber capabilities as a deterrent to other people's bomber capabilities worked for about nine months at the start of, nine, of, of World War II uh, and then completely collapsed. Uh, the norms were gone because the logic of offensive weapons and the logic of demonstrating your deterrent capability, it looks to you like a demonstration. It looks to the other guys like a, an expansion of your attack. Uh, so it's not, it's not clear to me that um, uh, we can build anything like the deterrence that we had with nukes. Uh, uh, in fact, everybody's already, there's no taboo. Uh, everybody's using them. Well, the great difficulty in building this is that in the case of nuclear, in the case of bombers, and in the case of drones until recently, um, the weapon was in the hands of the state. Right. Whereas in the case of cyber, it's in the hands of the state. It's in the hands of criminal groups. Right. It's in the hands of teenagers. Right. Teenagers don't sign treaties. At least the teenagers in my household don't <laughs> sign treaties. Right. <laughs> so uh, it's it's a much more complex issue. Yeah. So the other thing that I was I was kind of disappointed about, and maybe you can do this in a follow up, is you actually talked about all the skeptics who had ex expressed views about other ways in which the uh, data might have been faked, and why why the U.S. government was foolish to insist that it was North Korea. What I was disappointed by is you described their theories, but you didn't actually call them up and ask them for comment. Uh, I, and. Uh, I, not, I haven't seen any comments from those guys. Uh, 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 they were quite uh, self-confident when they put forward their alternative theories, and then uh, they've just sort of gone to ground. Well, I'm sure that the moment will come. Uh, there are two reasons for that. Um, uh, the first reason is that uh, when you're working on a story of this kind of sensitivity, uh, you can't give you it away. You can't just call people up and ask for comment on it because your your story will get out right. before you've had a chance to go finish your editing. Uh, so that's number one. Uh, the second problem is that um, fundamentally the critics are dealing from a, a separate set data set. Mm -hmm. They don't have and they won't have access to, and I won't have access to unless it becomes declassified, the actual transcripts of what one saw from these implants or from other signals intelligence. Right. You know, maybe there was North Korean General A talking to North Korean General B saying, let's go meet at the office at 8 p.m. and work on the Sony code. I doubt it. Right. <laughs> okay. But who knows, you know, um, what is out there. Um, what we do know 
and I can't vouch for the quality of the evidence they have, we do know, as the story said, that the evidence presented from these, um, from being inside the system, inside the networks, convinced a skeptical president. Okay, right. now that's a different thing from saying I have seen the evidence and it is irrefutable. And many of the skeptics may say they want to go see the evidence, and I wouldn't be shocked if at some point, either by declassification or by leak, some of this evidence comes out. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Then the the, the intelligence committees are entitled to see it if they choose to. That's right. Uh, uh, so, uh, last question then. Uh, uh, you've twice talked about the president's skepticism, uh, and I was recently reading uh, um, uh, uh, Secretary Gates's uh, uh, book in which he talks about the profound skepticism of at least the political side of the uh, White House and to some extent the president uh, about his treatment and relationship with the military. Uh, does he have the same uh, hands-off, worried that they're really not on his side attitude toward the uh, intelligence uh, uh, community? Um, uh, because in some respects, he really gets off on that stuff. He really likes these secrets. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, what's your sense about well, his I relationship? I think it's very different with the intelligence community than with the military. Um, if your listeners have not gone and read Duty, which is Secretary Gates' yeah, book. Yeah, fine book. It, it's actually the best single memoir to come out of the Obama administration because it's written by somebody who was an insider but was also a bit of an outsider. Right. He was a Republican, the only holdover from the Bush administration, uh, doesn't particularly care for a lot of the president's team. So he comes to it with – it's a very different kind of book than with all due respect to theirs if you read Leon Panetta's book or you read Secretary Clinton's book. You're written by people who were on the Obama team right. from early on. Okay. Um, secondly, Gates is just a brilliant writer. And hey, he, he, it's, it's a it's a great book. Oh, it's way longer than it, it, <laughs> it, it needed. Be. It needed some editing, but that's okay. I'm willing to I'm willing to put up with that. And you know, I, I, I say this as somebody who was heavily criticized in the book for some things that we published. Right. Okay. Uh, so, uh, but I have enormous respect for him, not only as a Secretary of Defense. Uh, but just as an observer and writer and chronicler of these events. Um, second thing is to your question about the relationship between the president and the intelligence community. Um, president Obama came into office not having thought very much about cyber issues apart from the privacy questions, which he had dealt with as a law professor right. at the University of Chicago. Uh, during the campaign, he ran some cyber events and then he gets down in the Situation Room early in 2009, and this is all recounted in Confront and Conceal, and suddenly is laid out for him the horse blanket uh, that shows all of the different centrifuges in Natanz and the cyber attacks on them. And he, as you said, gets way into the details of right. this. Not because he's so fascinated by the cyber, but because he sees an alternative to going to war with Iran. Right. Okay. And so I think he's gotten a lot more comfortable with these issues. In the case of the military, his concern was that they were so invested in Iraq and Afghanistan from their experiences during the Bush administration that they were trying to push him into, into a 10-year-long commitment, yeah. right? Whereas in the intelligence community, I think he found a lot more skepticism and one of the great divides in Washington between intel and military has been the intel community has been fairly consistent in saying, I know you guys think that if you stay in Iraq and Afghanistan, you're going to turn them into shining uh, democracies. Ain't going to happen, and so, here's why. So if, if I, I get that, then what is it that – what's the source of his skepticism? I, the source of his skepticism is that he saw – how one can make some intellectual leaps from some narrow uh, intel and end up invading a country. So this is – the profound uh, reluctance is attribution in particular because it 
requires him to act, uh, and because he fears being pushed into action on the same basis that we went into Iraq. Uh, that's right. Let me give you an example that's not a non-cyber one, but one that I did a lot of reporting on. Uh, it was the use of chemical weapons in Syria. So you'll remember that yeah. he stood up and set the famous red line, uh, said if they move or use chemical weapons... And then they spent about a year trying to turn the other way amid a mounting amount of evidence that the regime was using some chemical weapons. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I was in Israel in uh, 2013, early 2013, when uh, we got a hold of some of the first intelligence about the use, uh, small-scale use of chemical weapons and published it on the front page. And uh, there was a call from Secretary of State uh, Kerry to Prime Minister Netanyahu in which they basically got Prime Minister Netanyahu to back away from his own country's intelligence on this because of the fear it would force the U.S. hand. Right. Now, a few months later, this was all moot because there was a much larger attack which the U.S. Like attributed and right. videos of people choking to death and, and, uh, and this was attributed to, um, to Assad and then the, the president ran up to the line of taking military action and then walked back, and in the end, oddly enough, through the help of the Russians, got most of the chemical weapons that we know about, anyway, out of the country. So it had a good ending, even though it was an, it was ugly getting there. So but it was is, an example of his hesitance that once intelligence becomes public, it can create a groundswell for action right. that you may not want to take. Right. Okay. That, that, that makes perfect sense. So it's not so much that he mistrusts the intelligence community as he, uh, he may not like the answers when it right. pushes him in a direction he doesn't want to go. And he sees now that once it becomes, uh, a, a the received wisdom in the intelligence community, it's going to get out and, and, it, and it, he can't it, stop. There are just too many of us cruising around too much inside that system for this to stay secret indefinitely. Now, look, there's a lot we miss every day. I, right. I go to work every day uh, convinced that I've got a handle on fully 3% of what's going on. Okay, <laughs> uh, But the, the key is you can persuade us it's the most important thing. That's right. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So um, uh, I think the president has been hesitant uh, to go use this stuff. But at the same time, he understands deterrence theory. And a big part of the deterrent for North Korea is to say, here, hey, we can figure out what you're doing a lot faster than you think you, we can, and there may be a price to pay for that. Yes, they, 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 we'll, we'll see whether he can come up with a price to pay. But, uh, uh, David, thank you so much. This thank was you. Terrific, a lot, a, a great conversation. Uh, we always give our guests an opportunity to plug anything that they are doing or selling. Obviously, you've got your uh, your book out, which I've read, and it's a it's an excellent book and really the the, the premier uh, resource on uh, Stuxnet. Uh, that's Confront and Conceal uh, uh, Obama's Secret Wars and Surprising Use of American Power. Um, you got another book coming? Uh, I hope at some point I will. Uh, you know, my my view of these books is um, you've got to make them different and dis from your daily journalism, but you also have they also have to build on your daily journalism. So they take a while to go do. Uh, my first one was the Inheritance, which was a look back at the Bush administration foreign policy, and it came out just as President Obama was taking office. It was one of those things that. Um, Secretary Gates was um, not happy about, as I read into into duty, uh, because of some of the revelations there, also in the cyber sphere. Um, Confront and Conceal is actually a book about the first-term foreign policy of President Obama, but it opens with with the attacks on uh, on Iran, uh, which the U.S. government has still not acknowledged. In fact, you can go through the Gates memoir, the Panetta memoir, and the Clinton memoir and find no mention of Olympic Games or the operations against Iran, even though all three of them were down in the Situation Room 
in what is the opening scene of Confront and Conceal, which uh, described when Leon Panetta came down to explain that the Stuxnet virus had gone free. So, you know, there's a, there's a reason you need a little bit of independent journalism. Right I, I, I don't expect them uh, anytime soon to uh, uh, confirm that story. That. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, okay. I, uh, thank you, David. Thank uh, you, Stuart. I, and as a reminder, the Cyber Law Podcast is now open to feedback, send questions, suggestions for interviews, uh, topics to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, you can leave voicemail messages at uh, 202-862-5788. I have promised to uh, play the most entertainingly abusive uh, uh, comment we get, and we haven't gotten any, uh, at least not entertainingly abusive. You, you will. <laughs> I have no doubt. So this has been Episode 50 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Next week, next week we'll be joined by Jeff Carr and Tom Ridd of Taya Global. Uh, I, uh, uh, Jeff Carr is. Uh, uh, and uh, they'll be talking about the attribution problem more generally, so uh, this should be interesting. Uh, Becky Richards of the NSA Privacy Office will also be joining us. Julie Brill has agreed to do an interview, uh, I'm pleased to say, in Vermont. Uh, um, so for the next uh, three or four months, uh, uh, we'll have some uh, very entertaining interviews. And we hope you'll join us again uh, as we provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.